If you think your girl's a good looker, take a good look at this guy's dolls. My name's Bond, James Bond. The new Bond. The different 007 on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Hello, my name is Ho Lin, and I run the Camera Roll movie review blog, and this is the Camera Roll podcast. This week, we're going to pay tribute to a film that's just about to turn 50 years old on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Picture this. It's the year 1969. The James Bond film series has been going on for seven years now, and it's basically the biggest thing in movies. And yet, the star of the entire series, the man who everybody associates with James Bond, Sean Connery, has just left the role. And taking over for him is a completely unknown Australian actor who's best known for being a TV model and used car salesman. Not only that, but the movie is an adaptation of an Ian Fleming novel that is one of his best, but also one of his darkest. The result? A true oddity in the James Bond series, and quite possibly the best Bond film of them all. So to quickly recap the plot of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, James Bond, played by first-time actor George Lazenby, is hot on the trail of his archenemy Blofeld, played by Telly Savalas. And during his hunt, he comes across Countess Teresa de Vicenzo, played by Dame Diana Rigg, who happens to be the daughter of the head of a notorious crime syndicate, played by Gabrielle Verzetti. Well, one thing leads to another, and Bond and Tracy fall in love. One of the few times in the entire James Bond series where Bond actually falls in love, and his trail to Blofeld leads him to a health clinic secluded high up in the Swiss Alps. To infiltrate the clinic, Bond poses as a professor from the London College of Arms, and from there it's the usual bevy of beautiful women, exciting stunts, and a villainous plot to hold the world at ransom. But the ultimate outcome of the story is anything but usual. Today you'll be learning more about the history behind the film and the reasons why it should get a lot more love than it does. Just a note here before we get into this conversation that there will be spoilers. Joining me today to discuss the movie is my friend and fellow movie aficionado Kit Fox. Uh, I asked Kit to describe himself, and he says that he watches too many movies for his own damn good. And some would call that a problem, but he does not find it so. Okay, well, Kit, welcome back to San Francisco. Hey, nice to be in town, if only for a week. (laughs) (laughs) So, today we're talking about Bond, and as it happens, Bond is in the news. So, I'll ask you flat out, No Time to Die. What do you think of that as the title of the new one? Sure, why not? (laughs) Why not? Let's let's see let's see what they do with it. I mean, we've been waiting. We thought we thought like it wasn't going to happen, and that was going to happen, and that wasn't going to happen. And then D- Danny Boyle dropped out, and then Kerry Joji Fukunaga is going to do it. So, well, and then they brought in what's her name from Fleabag to like do Waller-Bridge. yeah to do like a polish on the script, which is kind of inspired because Fleabag is funny as hell. So, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it myself. You know, it's I mean. You look forward to it, and 
Will it be great? I don't know. Based on the title, based on the pedigree of the people involved, it's like it could be the best people and it could be the worst Bond movie in like a decade. <laughs> like you never know. It's like you could have like great people working on it and it'd be like a garbage Bond movie or like vice versa. You could have people that aren't as well known and you're like, that was really good. I don't know. It seems like to me. <laughs> yeah. All I can say is best modern Bond film director, Martin Campbell. I think that says it all right there. You think so? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not bad. It's kind of fitting since I talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last week, which is set in 1969. Now we're actually in the year 1969, celebrating the 50th anniversary of what many consider to be the best Bond movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. God, has it been that long since we saw it opening weekend? 50 years. That's crazy. Uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> we, are, we are spry 80-year-olds. I have a little story to tell about my first viewing of the movie, but before I get into that, I know you you have a particular affection for 60s yeah. spy movies in general. Yeah. I know you, you love Mad Helm, for example. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? And when that popped up in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was I felt like I was the only person in the audience who was like, I saw the record. I have the box set. I have the <laughs> Mad Helm box set. Like I was talking to my friend. He's like, wait, that, those were real movies? I'm like, there were several of them. It wasn't just one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is it about that particular era of filmmaking that... Float your boat. The aesthetics are fun because you've got like just some swinging 60s like nonsense as far as like fashion goes and uh, music cues, but movies could be just stylistic in ways that you wouldn't expect something, I don't know, from like maybe like the late 50s to be. They just add these like stylistic flourishes. So, like, I think of you know something like while it's not an espionage film in any way, shape, or form. It's like, if you like On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you probably like Petulia. Not the most radical story, but it's just got these like fun stylistic flourish. Like they're just playing with time and editing. And even if it maybe isn't in like service of the narrative, they're like, who cares? It like, it looks cool. Part of the moving going fun is like having this, yeah, aesthetic experience. So I've always really enjoyed that. And I thought they kind of, I don't know, you'll you'll see movies of that era and there's just this degree of fun also that they're imbued with. Mm -hmm. Like also, you know, a prelude to like shit getting gnarly in the 70s. Like you can see it like going on the way, going down that route. So it's like before it got like really dark and grim. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny you say that because I do think OHMSS does come at a specific juncture that's very uh, interesting just in terms of cinematic history because I was just looking at films that came out in 1969 and you have Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy, Wild Bunch. So that's right on the edge. (laughs) Did you read that book, uh, Pictures at a Revolution? Mm, It's really good. So it was was written by the guy whose most recent one was The Five Came Back. But it was about, I think, was it like 1968? It was like the movies that were nominated for Best Film was it like 67 or 68? So it's like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate. It's about how that was sort of the precipice of what then led to, you know, death of old Hollywood and like new stuff happening and the 70s exploding. And yeah, it was this amazing transitional period where in that year there were movies, like very traditional, Dr. Doolittle came out that year. You know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. Dr. Doolittle and Bonnie and Clyde came out in the same year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff, stuff of that nature. I do have a fondness for that period. You definitely feel like it's an era of experimentation where people are just going all out in different directions. And 
sometimes you wonder if mainstream cinema will ever get back to something like that. Will it? Yeah. W- will it? Can it? Is it, you know, is it even possible? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So quickly, my Under Majesty's Secret Service story. I first saw the film when I was nine years old. Our local university had a James Bond film marathon. So my family, a few friends and I went to see it. Uh, at the time, we really didn't know much about James Bond lore in terms of how cinematic Bond has evolved over the years. So we were sitting in the theater. I was watching it, and it's like, okay, this guy's James Bond. This is kind of weird. Yeah, it's a lot of weird stuff happening in this movie. Uh, he's, he's wearing a skirt now. Oh, that's actually a kilt. Okay. Uh, okay, a lot of ski stuff. Oh, that was really gruesome, the guy getting chopped up in the, in the snowblower. And then my friend had to go to the bathroom, I think I had to go too. So we left the theater to go to the bathroom. We came back, and it turns out the doors were locked, so we couldn't get back in the theater. So we missed the last 20 minutes in the movie. So we just sat there, and you know, we were nine-year-old punks. We didn't know any better. It's like, ah, well, that movie wasn't any good anyway. It doesn't, doesn't matter. And then my family came out. My f- other friends who saw it to the end came out, and we asked them what happened. And they said, yeah, it was crazy. You know, it was a big, uh, big showdown, big the climax at the, the mountain getaway and he gets married and then his wife gets killed and my friend and I looked at each other it's like oh that sounds stupid <laughs> little did I know but um, I'm, I'm happy to say that I got to see it when it came out on VHS seven years or so later and uh, it allowed me to uh, reformat my opinion and you know my list of top Bond films is always changing uh, but it's definitely up there I would say probably top three at least so Okay, so just to get into a little bit of the background for the movie, this movie was originally supposed to come out after Goldfinger, but it was ended. But it was the sixth one. It right? ended up being the sixth one. Yeah. Uh, originally, it was planned to be the fourth one, uh, but certain things conspired against it. Number one, when Ian Fleming wrote the James Bond novel Thunderball, he wrote it in collaboration with a couple other folks. One of which was uh, Kevin McClory, who became a film producer, and he ultimately claimed he had the rights to the book. So to head him off at the pass, the Bond film producers, Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, decided to collaborate with him. So they moved Thunderball up to be the fourth movie in the series after Goldfinger. And then they thought about having this movie right after Thunderball, which actually makes sense because if you read the Ian Fleming novels, that's pretty much the right order in which they appear. But for some reason, they felt it was, quote, Thunderball on skis. So I decided to hold back. Ski ball. They could have. <laughs> but I also think at the time that they were also saying Bond was getting more fantastical in terms of the scope of it and the gadgetry. And they felt that Honor Majesty's Secret Service was a little bit too downbeat a story to put out at that point. So instead you get You Only Live Twice as the fifth James Bond movie, which is as crazy as you can get. I happen to love it myself, but I understand some people might not have uh, such rosy feelings for it because it does completely go over the top, in my opinion, in a good way. But uh, but anyway, long story short, um, as it turns out, Sean Connery stepped away from the role of James Bond after You Only Live Twice. A massive talent search was held for the next Bond, and the final candidates I have the list here include John Richardson, Hans de Vries, Robert Campbell, and Anthony Rogers, none of which have gone on to do anything. <laughs> Showing my ignorance, but I'm like, I don't know, it was one of them. John Richardson, the name sort of rings a bell. Right. But I might be confusing him with another Richardson. <laughs> like, you know, it sounds like, you know, like a C grade, like Richard Burton or something. <laughs> like, 
I don't know, he was like his stand-in or something. Yeah, yeah. So as it turns out, the role ended up going to Australian-born George Lazenby, who up to that point was basically a used car salesman and a model. And the story of how he got the part has sort of become part of the James Bond lore, but he basically heard about this opening and he basically sauntered into the producer's offices and said, this is your James Bond right here. And they liked his swagger. And he basically lied to their face and told them that, yeah, he had all these other acting credits on his resume. And when the director found out, he was afraid that, okay, that's it, they're going to fire me now. But the director said, you just fooled two of the most ruthless people in the business. If, if you can act in front of them, you can act in this movie. And the rest is pretty much history. Director of this movie is Peter Hunt, who has made an enormous contribution to James Bond films in general. He uh, edited the first five of them. And it's kind of hard to tell now from our present vantage point, but when those original James Bond movies first came out in the early 60s, the cutting style was something new and completely different, just the way the jazzy cuts. Sometimes you'd have these crazy jump cuts in the middle of fight scenes. Just the overall pace of it and the sort of vibrancy of it, a lot of it is due to his work as an editor, I think. Uh, which brings us to the actual movie itself. What is it about the movie that resonates with you? Dive right in. I, like, I remember, I think like the first time I saw it, it was probably on Laserdisc. And I just remember being like, this is my favorite Bond movie. No matter how many other Bond movies I watch, like that hasn't wavered. Mm. It's kind of just nice. I was just sort of like, just from like the get-go, even before he utters, this never happened to the other fella, they have that fight on the beach. And it just had this like frenetic quality that didn't necessarily associate with like Hollywood action sequences. Mm -hmm. Like it was fast, moody and dark and kind of scary. And also like raw and rough. Like, it made me think of actually, like, remember that fight sequence in Manchurian Candidate where, like, Frank Sinatra and this guy are just, like, tearing this room apart? And you're like, that was, like, intense. And, like, they're, you know, wrecking shit. It was that kind of stuff. Not to say that, like, the Connery stuff was, like, cartoony, but it made it seem cartoony in comparison. You know, this was a bit more, like, raw 60s verite stuff. And it just, I was just kind of like, wow, that's that just felt different than the fight sequences that you saw in Thunderball. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. I think it, it's interesting. So many people think that Bond movies are producer-driven, but I've always argued that you can always find a director's stamp on a particular movie. And I do think that's Peter Hunt's particular stamp on the movie. He basically takes that jagged cutting style from his early movies, and then he pumps it up to like the nth degree in this one. I think it's really effective that way. Yeah, another interesting director coming from an editing background, like Hal Ashby. That's really cool. But yeah, and you know, it just starts with fucking Dame Diana Rigg and her ruby red muscle car. <laughs> you see her and you see that car and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> where is this going? Mm -hmm. I want to see where this is going. <laughs> I think we should probably mention here that this was actually probably the last Bond movie until Casino Royale, you could probably argue, that actually used the book as the foundation of the story. Right, and the book's really fun. I really like the book a lot. Not that other ones are like, you know, boring in comparison, but I just remember, you know, going through the book and being like, this was a great read too. It, it pulls you in. And obviously they uh, uh, have some diversions from the book in the film, which I imagine we'll get to later. But yeah, it was like solid source material. Certainly, uh, there's long sections of the book where they 
You get the full skinny on the ins and outs of heraldry. <laughs> Bond and his bezants. <laughs> Gold balls. All four of them. <laughs> and you also get a good sort of uh, journalistic overview about bacteriological warfare in general. <laughs> bacteriological warfare, yeah, you know. That's Fleming's journalistic background coming into play. I know for some people, I guess probably myself included, it slows down the pace of the book a little bit for me. But I agree, one of the best Ian Fleming books for sure. The opening credit sequence, where they show clips from all the earlier Bond films. Like, what's your take on that? Like, watching it recently, I felt it was sort of being like, okay, look, we know you have no fucking clue who this Lazenby dude is, but trust us, this is a James Bond movie. Remember all those James Bond movies you like? You're gonna see that stuff again. Like, trust, stay with us, it's James Bond. <laughs> like, it wasn't a different, elaborate, Baroque Bond opening sequence. I think that's exactly what they were trying to do. And uh, <laughs> there's also the scene early on in the movie where he's in his office and he starts bringing out some of the gadgets Brings he up. used in his previous movies. And you and got some m music cues yeah. from, yeah, so You're just, you know. I was supposed to believe that this is the same guy. Like preemptively setting up this continuity where you're like, hey, same universe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Stay with us, guys. Exactly. <laughs> but then if, if you really want to get nerdy and nitpicky, though, you know, he met Blofeld in the previous movie and then he meets him again in this movie with basically no disguise and Blofeld doesn't recognize him as Bond, so... <laughs> continuity yeah. within the Bond universe can be a little squishy sometimes. You know? Yeah, squish. Squishy is a good way to put it. <laughs> but it's, it's a, yeah, it's a membrane that's very yeah, permeable. But there was definitely a lot of anxiousness on the producer's part about bringing in a new James Bond. I mean, I think if you if you think about putting yourself back in that time, it would be like, hey, Harrison Ford's not playing Indiana Jones anymore. We're just like, here's a new one. Bring somebody totally different in because. I mean, those maybe those movies made a ton of money and were like a huge hit. And then this is maybe like leading up to the era of like a tentpole movie, you know, where it's like, okay, we've got this franchise that we just know every couple of years we're just going to go to the bank on this, you know? Like it was like one of the first really big ones. They had this guy who's this international star now and he's not going to be doing it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely very anxiety provoking in fact in early drafts of the screenplay i understand they actually had a segment where they introduced bond as getting plastic surgery so his enemies can't recognize him anymore and then voila george lazenby he's looking in the mirror like that sequence of the marx brothers movies where it's like groucho and groucho but it's like george lazenby and sean connor and they're like moving in tandem yeah and like lazenby shows up you know with his prominent mole and his dimpled chin and he's just so 60s cool. I vaguely, I, like I recall in the books, I feel like Bond, an adjective that was often used to describe him was cruel. Like he had a cruel expression or a cruel look. Lazenby doesn't have that. He looks like, he looks, he's got the physique of like an Olympic swimmer. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't doubt that he's like super athletic and suave and smooth, but he doesn't have that element so like they weren't going for that mm -hmm. you know and i don't think like they went for that for a bit like maybe they got close with timothy dalton but he was like more rakish i think like they only i think really got in that direction with like daniel craig where it's mm -hmm. like okay yeah that guy looks kind of like bruiser ish mm -hmm. so like they were i don't know i felt like they they did not they consciously did not want to go that way they wanted to keep it like up and swinging the characterization of bond with lays and v is, is definitely a change from connery era you know he, he definitely seems 
a little bit more callow. Yeah. Not, not, not. I'm not saying that in a pejorative way, but it, it seems like he's not the cynic that Connery is, which kind of plays into the story, I think, because he, he's the, still the suave, arrogant Bond that we know, but it's almost as if he hasn't been touched by any sort of tragedy yet. I mean, yeah, he does have, like, this... Matt Helmish quality, where he's just kind of like, things happen. He's like, oh, wow, this will be fun. Like, he kind of like, he walks into a room and he's not like, shit, what's going down? He's like, oh, well, that was an odd fight in my hotel room. I guess I'll just go see what happened to that lady that I met, whose life I said, you know? And like, it's just, he has this like positivity. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting way to find out. I know, but yeah, he just kind of like, yeah, there's like joie de vivre or whatever. There doesn't seem to be much cynicism. To this bond at all which i think sort of ties into your earlier remarks about why you like those 60 movies they have a certain swagger to them yeah a certain confidence it's like hey we're gonna do whatever the hell we want and why not yeah and you know and it was an era of like you know long-limbed gangly james coburn like physique you know mm-hmm. and fun was important like, in addition to, like, intrigue. Because, hey, man, we're having a great time eating acid and, like, discovering <laughs> ourselves because it's the late 60s. So it's like, what if Bond were fun? <laughs> <laughs> which kind of makes it doubly ironic that Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which has the most tragic ending of any Bond film. Right? Well, and so you've got, like, I think a very quintessential late 60s, like, downer ending where it, like, sticks in and breaks. He cries. Bond fucking cries. There's no hurry, you see. You have all the time in the world. Ducks down so you don't see tears coming down his eyes, but like he's crying at the end of the movie. You know? Interesting story about that. Apparently, the first take of that scene, when he's cradling his dead wife in his arms, he actually did cry. And then the director, Peter Hunt, said, nope, James Bond does not cry. Or at least we don't see him cry, which led to the take that we know now from the movie. But yeah, it's like that happens and you're like, wait, this is a James Bond movie? What? Like, feelings. (laughs) You don't think of Bond having feelings other than, like, anger or pain or, you know, the afterglow after, you know... (laughs) getting banged <laughs> but i think that's what makes it powerful in a way because in a lot of ways under majesty secret service sort of fulfills the standard brief of a james bond movie yeah. you have you have specter you have a world-threatening you know villainous scheme you have a couple of ladies that bond has to bed and you have yeah. crazy chases you have the big battle at the end with yeah. dueling armies that sort of thing and then it just sort of hits you upside the head with that ending and you're like oh my god he's sensitive <laughs> what I mean, but, and like, so I love that little touch, like at the very end, I were jumping around, but like at the wedding, when he sees Money Penny and he does that little like wave, kind of like this sort of like little boyish kind of like gesture that's just kind of like really adorable. Mm. It's like Bond's not adorable, mm. but he Lazenby like makes him that at times. <laughs> and I think sort of the other key ingredient that we're, we're sort of alluding to here is Diana Rigg. Dame Diana Rigg. I I mean, she's not a Bond girl. She's a Bond lady. You're full of surprises, Contessa. So are you, Mr. Bond. Do you always arm yourself for rendezvous? Occasionally, I seem to be excellent, Bron. I'll take that if you don't mind. You're very sure of yourself, aren't you? 
Suppose I were to kill you for a thrill. I can think of something more sociable to do. Now let's stop playing games. Who was that man in your room? You're hurting me. I thought that was the idea tonight. Now, who was he? I don't know what you're talking about. I can be a lot more persuasive, Contessa. I'm sure you can. Whatever else I may be, I'm not a liar. It's, I don't know, I feel like it's like just different strata. <laughs> like, she's <laughs> up there. She's so elegant that, like, putting her, there is no comparison with, like, I don't know. <laughs> and it's interesting to compare her character to basically just about every Bond woman who's come before and since. Uh, because let's face it, in a lot of Bond movies, the, the Bond woman's more of a decorative role. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but in this, you're basically casting an actress who is much more experienced than your leading man. Yeah. And you're trying to build a convincing love story between the two of them. And I think it works mostly because of her. Yeah. I think you really buy that. Even though she's this strong, charismatic, tough woman, she totally is vulnerable in a certain way and, yeah. and feels the need to be with James Bond. Perhaps for an audience that's been weaned on some of the later Bond movies like Daniel Craig era, you know, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal. But I think coming off of five Sean Connery movies, you see that for the first time. It really is striking. Well, and like one of the things that was so revolutionary about Bonnie and Clyde was like it really depicted them as being total partners. And she was more of a partner to Bond. And you yes. saw some of that with the heroines later on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like not an accessory. Like she was like partnering with him well she basically saves his ass twice right right (laughs) like and she has agency and of course you know she's like dealing with her dad's retrograde notions about femininity (laughs) i mean like we like like when he hits her at the end it's like get get the fuck out of here come on she's so cool papa where's james don't worry you'll join us soon but we can't leave he doesn't need your help i will not go without you'll have to Yeah, I mean, like, she fights a dude on her own and, like, kills a dude on her own. Like, she Mm -hmm. holds her own. Yeah. So, obviously, one of the high points of the movie, I think we agree. Damn Diana Rake, for sure. Definitely. Um, Other highlights for me, you know, as a soundtrack nerd, John Barry's score still hasn't up and topped. And it's it's funny, you, you sort of talked earlier about how the producers wanted to remind us that this is still a James Bond uh, Barry himself has said that his approach to the score was, okay, we're going to take everything that makes James Bond, James Bond in the music, and we're just going to double down on it. <laughs> right? And, like, the theme version, it, like, swings. Like, it's, I don't know, it's, like, balls to the wall, you know? Like, the whole orchestra is just, like, banging it out, like, as loud as they can. Mm-hmm. I think it's, like, rad. It's, like, wall of sound of the James Bond theme that they play early on. Right. But I do have to say, I think the genius of John Barry is that he can give you something like that, but then he's also capable of giving you very lyrical passages. And the song, the uh, sort of the love theme of the movie, We Have All the Time in the World, sung by Louis Armstrong, one of his last recorded performances. We have all the time in the world. Like, how do they get that to happen? How do they get Louis Armstrong to record that rather echoey version? (laughs) Like, you hear it now, and it sounds kind of tinny. (laughs) Well, they actually got him into a studio. Phil Ramone produced the session. Um, And they were worried because, you know, he he was not doing well physically at that point. And they were going into it. They were thinking, okay, what Louis Armstrong are we going to get here? (laughs) 
but they said, you know, as soon as he started singing the song, there was no doubt. So, so I don't know. Real talk. Do you know where Christmas trees made songs <laughs> asinine? That song's garbage. That's a dumb song. <laughs> like, like that's like some dumb '60s shit. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, come, I know they needed like some background music when they're ice skating or something. It's just not as elegant as like the earlier stuff. Like, you know, like this has Bond playing Baccarat, not Texas Hold'em, because that's elegant. What What I do appreciate about a lot of the older Bond movies is I, I think there is that sort of luxe travelogue feel to a yeah. lot of them that we've lost a lot of the more recent ones and maybe it's because everybody can travel to anywhere anyway, and it's like not that big of a deal you just like book a flight get an Airbnb and we could be in Bali tomorrow we will be actually <laughs> right after we wrap this up <laughs> yep <laughs> exactly. well we'll stop in Singapore on the way right but still you know just sort of the particular lifestyle I mean, I know now people lampoon it, Lifestyles of Rich and Famous, but there's still something to the allure of Bond as a character where you can go into this posh casino where people are gambling with like 200,000 francs at the time. And this was your entree into that. There was no other way of like seeing that, you know? And like it wasn't as, it wasn't as depicted in TV as often and you didn't see it documented. Yeah, in the lives of celebrities. It was, yeah, it had this great travel log quality to it. People could just be like, hey, so wh where does he go? What, what are we going to learn? Yeah. yeah. And I still think people do look forward to that. And yeah. I think, it's, you know, in scattered places in some of the more recent movies, you do get a little bit of that feel. But I, I, it is something I do sort of miss from some of the newer entries. Yeah. Now, while I am so, so glad, so, so glad I finally quit smoking. God, don't smoke. <laughs> don't smoke, don't vape. Oh, I'm so glad I quit smoking. But smoking's so cool. And I really appreciate <laughs> the extraordinarily idiosyncratic depictions of smoking that you see in this movie. Hmm. So like you've got Draco and he's got his like long ass like cigarette holder mm. that he uses to like make his point mm. like a conductor's baton. <laughs> and you know, when he's like talking to Bond, he's getting him, he's getting him like psyched about, you know, what he needs him to do for his, he's getting him psyched about marrying and sleeping with his daughter. What she needs is a man to dominate her, to make love to her enough to make her love him. A man like you. And then you've got Telly fucking Savalas. <laughs> Telly Savalas, who is in the pantheon of bald actors as a bald man. You know, he is up there. With, you know, <laughs> we've got Yul Brenner. We've got Patrick Stewart. Mm -hmm. We've got Telly Savalas. Sure. Like, you know, yep. they're, they're there. They make it okay for us to exist. <laughs> you know, Bruce Willis a bit now. But the way he fucking smokes, no one has ever smoked like that. And no one ever will. Like, he holds, like, his fist out, and he's got the cigarette, like, sticking up. And then, like, he turns it up and, like, smokes like this. And, like, <laughs> like, not even, like, you know, you'll see, like, crazy depictions of, like, smoking when, you know, you'll see, like, an SS officer. And, like, they'll be holding it, like, between their middle fingers or something. Like, no one smokes like that except, like, the Gestapo. But, like, no one fucking smokes like that. How, where did that come from? What, what, what do you call that? The Vegas method? Or? I don't even fucking know. But it's, like... Like, he invented a new way to smoke <laughs> for this movie. And it's just it's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, Bond just walked into, like, you know, his own harem manga up in the Pitts Gloria. And then it's like, then you get this ridiculous smoking. Pitts Gloria, have you been there? I've I know not. you're a globetrotter. I've not. You've not. 
I had a buddy, it's funny, my friend Adam, like randomly was there with his girlfriend and bought me an ashtray. And he didn't know this was my favorite Bond movie. He's like, hey, you know, we were at this like really cool thing. They oddly had like some James Bond stuff. So I got you an ashtray. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you're in the pits. That's my favorite Bond movie. Was like, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, they sell, they sell Bond ashtrays up there. Or at least they did. <laughs> okay, well, that's awesome. Well, you know, they built that whole place for the movie. And then they just decided to keep it after the movie. It goes, just goes to show you where 1969 budgets could do back then. Right. Yeah, they're like, all right, let's 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 just keep it going. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Instead of, yeah, like, oh, I guess we'll just tear it down and like do something. Or, or CG. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just CG. It's like, no, they built that shit. Mm-hmm. Okay, they didn't blow it up at the end. There was some fun model work and, like, some, you know, some movie magic. But, yeah, that's great that they just built it. And they're like, yeah, sure. This is our gift to the world. (laughs) I should include a shout-out to, uh, speaking of stuff like that, the uh, action scenes and the stunt work in this movie probably have never been topped. I mean, I think there's a few who have come later that maybe have come close. The second unit director for this movie was John Glenn, who would later go on to direct five of the Bond movies. Uh, Everything from For Your Eyes Only in 1981 to License to Kill in 1989. Those are all John uh, Glenn. So you can you could sort of see his earmarks on those movies. They tend to be more action heavy. But I I want to give a special shout out to this crazy skier. His name was uh, Willie Bogner. Was that the guy who did the one-footed stuff when Bond loses a ski and he's uh, he didn't actually perform those stunts, but he filmed those stunts. And apparently the way he filmed those stunts was just as crazy as the stunts themselves. <laughs> right? Because, like, <laughs> someone is following them at that speed. Like, skiing backwards at top, ski, at top speed, holding, like, this humongous camera rig, just filming this crazy stuff. That's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's some John Frankenheimer shit. <laughs> There was some lame ass like Hitchcockian rear projection shit going on where it's like, oh, there's Lazy Me, there's Diana Rigg, and like they're going down the hill, and it's like, just show him from behind. Like, we don't need to see his face and like have some rear projection Bond action. Cause like, yeah, and like, cause you've just been watching like these amazing stunt sequences. It's like, I know that's Bond. Like, you don't have to like show me his face. You know, I don't need to see Telly Savalas' face. Like, I know that's Blofeld in that fucking toboggan. <laughs> yeah, part of the charm of Bond movies is the blue screen work. And, I mean, you can go basically even through the 90s to see some pretty shoddy blue screen and even green screen stuff. So. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> can we talk a bit about the harem, though? Like, especially, I thought, I mean, when I learned that Patsy from Ab Fab is, like, one of the girls, <laughs> that she is the English one yes. who's, like, snarfing chicken with the glasses, I was like, because oh she was a model, apparently. She like she was a big model, or I don't know, big, but like that's what she did. Joanna Lumley. Joanna Lumley. If nothing else, screams swinging sixties to you. Swinging super goddamn sixties, yeah. Where you have a multinational cast of female beauties, all dressed up in the clothes from the country from their that, national that, that they're from. <laughs> Just in case you know it wasn't Miss Universe enough. They're like, oh, by the way, you know. And she's from France. She's <laughs> from Holland. Like, yes. <laughs> and you have Bond pretending to be a professor from the College of Arms, wearing a kilt. <laughs> and 
So did you ever go down a heraldry rabbit hole because of this movie? <laughs> I have to say I didn't. Did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I mean, so like before Ancestry.com, like that's what you would do, right? But I think it's so funky that the villain's plot in the movie is basically, I want to be recognized as a count. Right? Like it's not, I mean, and then there's the like, okay, yeah, like hold the world for ransom, like whatever. The most important thing is establishing his credentials. <laughs> that Blofeld is a baron, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's certainly things in this movie that I don't think you'll ever see in the Bond movie again. That's probably one of them. It's <laughs> definitely one of them. Like, that's, that was his primary purpose. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, we're going to have to take a trip to, like, you know, where your ancestors' remains are kept. And he's like, later. But, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Let's see, other things I, I don't think you'll ever see again. I don't think you'll ever see a romantic montage sent to set to a Louis Armstrong song. Right? That was a romantic. They're holding hands. They're, like, doing couple shit. They're walking on the beach. They're riding horseback together. Riding horseback together. <laughs> like, oh, my God. It's so dreamy. It's, like, it's how you wish your parents met. <laughs> I don't think you'll ever see again. There's a classic suspense scene early in the movie where he has to find some files on Blofeld from a Swiss lawyer's office, and he's trying to get these files out before this tiny, pudgy little lawyer comes back to the office, and it builds up so much suspense. <laughs> and, and if you stop to think about it, it's like, it's just a little pudgy lawyer. What does he have to worry about? But... <laughs> right, he's just... And, like, he gets that elaborate device to, like, crack the safe... While, yeah. while he reads Playboy. While he's reading Playboy. And he's just, <laughs> yeah, again, this is like Bond's having fun. He's like, oh, I got like 20 minutes to kill. Hey, let's take a look at Miss September. You know? <laughs> and he's like, it's just with a smile on his face <laughs> the entire time. So, you know, surprise, surprise, not in the book, the ridiculous stock car chase <laughs> sequence. Not in the book at all. Where, like, suddenly it becomes, like, a fucking 70s car movie. Mm-hmm. Like, fucking Le Mans or, like, Tulane Blacktop. Or, like, it's, like, Vanishing Point. I hope my big end will stand up to this. And she's, like, she's, like, into it, too. She's, like, slamming into cars and, like, you know... Fucking like pedal to the metal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like Bond isn't driving. She is driving during that. Uh, and that's what I love about the scene, I think. The film does sort of take pains to, in a way that maybe the book doesn't to, to show you that, yes, this woman is Bond's equal and she could do all the crap as well as he can. Right, yeah. Um, and I also think it's an interesting move. One other way the movie diverges from the book is that uh, the heroine is basically not involved in the climax of the book at all. Right? She's basically just sitting at home worrying and waiting for Bond. Whereas in the movie, she's basically right in there with the action. As you mentioned earlier, kicking ass and actually killing people. <laughs> well, and like when they roll up and like they shoot through the windows, like she had to duck. Like her dad's <laughs> shooting at her. I mean, he's like, yeah, hey, she's my daughter. She'll be fine. Like that's what, that was the assumption that I had. But like mm-hmm. she had to like hit the ground because like there were bullets whizzing by her. And they're like, okay, we're going to be shooting at her, but she'll, she'll be okay. And she was. <laughs> she survived. I wanted to come back to Blofeld for a second. Yeah. So 
So far, four different actors have played Blofeld, each of them completely different in yeah. characterization. So you have Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice, or basically the model for Dr. Evil and all those Austin Powers movies. You have Telly Savalas as Blofeld in this movie. You have Charles Gray as Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. And finally, you have Christoph Waltz um, in Spectre. Yeah. So in your mind, Telly Savalas, number one? Telly Savalas, number one. I don't see Blofeld. I just see te- like Telly Savalas as the bad guy. Like, more than he's Blofeld, he's just Telly Savalas being Telly Savalas. Yeah, he just looks so great and ridiculous, and he has that maniacal, like, smile. You know, like, when he goes off and, like, the Dirty Dozen, you know, and he's just, like, shooting up, like, you know, his own people. You're just like, oh, that guy's nuts. Like, he's got this restrained insanity that you're like, he's just, like, a millisecond away from going off the chain. (laughs) And I just, yeah, I I just love him. He's just so hammy. He just like chew, he chews up scenery. <laughs> what do you think? I love the hamminess, but I also love it that when it comes time to like explain his dastardly plot, he just gives off that vibe. This is an evil son of a bitch. Right? <laughs> yeah. And and he's calm about it too. It's almost like an afterthought. Like, yeah, and you know, they're gonna like do my bidding and like release these chemical agents. Like, whatever. But. Yeah, because, like, I've got that shit on lockdown. (laughs) The information that I now possess the scientific means to control or to destroy the economy of the whole world. People will have more important things to think about than you. They believe your threat. (laughs) Oh, they will. Bacteria. Bacteriological warfare. With a difference. Our great breakthrough since last summer has been the confection of a certain... Vitus Omega. Infertility. Total infertility in plants and animals. Not just disease in a few words, Mr. Bond, or the loss of a single crop, but the destruction of a whole strain forever throughout an entire continent. If my demands are not met, I shall proceed with the systematic extinction of whole species of cereals and livestock all over the world. I, I will give props, though, to uh, Donald Pleasance as Blowfone Nearly Look Twice yeah. because no, he's, he's such dope. an odd actor and he makes such odd choices in playing that character. But it's for me, it makes it very memorable. So I do give him props for that. I mean, he's also got wild eyes, too. I mean, like you think like Wake and Fright, you know, like Donald Pleasance in that. He's just like savage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Donald Pleasance is a rad choice. <laughs> Did you have anything else on your list of stuff that you noticed sort of diverging from the book? I was just looking at like at the, the wedding at the end, like Money Penny's hat is just like such a mood. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, she just has this outfit. That you, <laughs> only only Money Penny would only Money Penny would wear that outfit to like Bond's wedding. But it's just like she's just like front and center, and it's just there's so much happening with it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I I read a review of this movie by uh, Charles Taylor from Salon mm. a while back. And he sort of makes the case that you could really read this as sort of like the last Bond movie. Like, right. This is the movie where he's trying to walk away from it all. And at the wedding at the end, every character, M, Q, Moneypenny, sort of gets their curtain call. And, like, that's it. They're like, mm-hmm. well, this, this is it. They are off to, like, live their lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Miss Moneypenny, what would you do without me? I always cry at weddings. Ah, 007 never had any respect for government property. And then, of course, it, it ends tragically, but... In a way, you could say it ends the story of James Bond because one of the, the genius things about the title of Honor Majesty's Secret Service is that that is who Bond is. No matter what he tries to do to get out of it, he will always be Honor Majesty's Secret yeah. Service. 
And after that, you really don't need to go anywhere else with the character, right? God knows I love every James Bond movie in its own way. <laughs> but after this movie is really when it sort of started settling into a formula, I yeah. think. And I think this, this is one of the few Bond movies where you actually feel the consequences of what happens. Yeah, and you weren't you weren't waiting for the formula to like play out. You're like, all right, so this Bond algorithm has been set in place, mm-hmm. and that's going to happen, and that's going to happen. There's going to be some tight stunts. It's going to sleep with three women, and then... <laughs> Yeah, you're just like, where, where's it going? You didn't know. And then you're like, he's getting married? Did not expect that. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say it's the biggest downer ending for a Bond film? What's more of a downer than that one? His wife gets shot, and he's cradling her corpse and crying. The end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> James I mean, Bond will return. Yes. The end. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shocker of an ending, and it's, it's, it's really sort of a disconnect because the movie ends on that note. And then all of a sudden, the James Bond yeah. theme just blares away on the soundtrack <laughs> right in your face. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> so you can just picture the audience like nice and empty, like, ah, shit. Like, <laughs> I was getting emotional at this spy movie. What the hell? <laughs> I mean, off the top of my head, I think the only one that really comes close is Casino Royale. Yeah, yeah. And even that, they sort of give you an ending. They stick an ending on top of that to say, okay, it's going to be okay. James Bond is on the case, James right? Bond. Obviously, with a film like this, you do get a lot of uh, mixed reactions. I mean, I think time has been very kind to it over the years. I know it's I been know. surprisingly kind. Yeah, rightfully kind. I would argue. <laughs> I wouldn't argue. Quality, quality maintains. People are like, "Oh wait, yeah, no, this was really good." Yeah, I think the film has this reputation of people thinking, "Oh, when it came out, nobody liked it," but uh, that's not quite true. I I dug up a couple quotes here from reviews of the time. Charles Champlin from the Los Angeles Times says, by a long shot, the very best of the James Bond epics. Pauline Kael from the New Yorker. Pauline Kael. This Bond thriller, the sixth and set mainly in Switzerland, introduces a new Bond, George Lazenby, who's quite a dull fellow. <laughs> and the script by Richard Mabum isn't much either, which is ironic because it basically follows Ian Fleming's novel pretty much to right. the letter. But the movie's exciting anyway. In some ways, it's the most dazzling of the series up to the time. Damn. On the flip side, you have Tom Milne from The Observer says, I fervently trust and hope that this will be the last of the James Bond films. <laughs> News, well, Newsweek says... Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> Newsweek says, neither new nor old, only imitative. Mm, <laughs> I would disagree. <laughs> Oakland Tribune says, George Lazenby promises that OHMSS will be his last Bond film. We hope he keeps his word. Well, and like, I thought I, I thought I read somewhere that like Lazenby bumped into Kubrick and Kubrick said something to him like, I loved what you did with James Bond, that you're never going to do it again. Like, catty as fuck. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> it's like, damn, Stanley, harsh. <laughs> there, there is a whole story behind why George Lazenby left the Bond role after one movie. The, the producers actually offered him a like a four film contract just when they were going to post-production on this thing. But George Lazenby was a true child of the late 60s, and one of his best friends was um, Ronan O'Reilly. Ronan O'Reilly. It's like spelled R-A-H-I-L-L-Y. And he, he basically founded Radio Caroline, which was that crazy pirate radio station oh, that was on a freighter yeah, 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 in yeah. the middle of the ocean. But 
Ronan basically became a close confidant of George and told him this James Bond thing is good. it's just a passing fad. Chimes are changing, man. None of this is going to last. You should move on. And so George decided to move on. <laughs> 50 years later. <laughs> 50 years later, and now George is going to be the answer to a trivia question. I, I mean, for so long, it was like a punchline, too. Like, there was that Simpsons episode where, like, Bart says, James Bond, and Marge goes, George Lazenby? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, he was good. <laughs> so in terms of the rest of his career, you know, he, he certainly appeared in a few odd Italian films here and there. Yeah. I think probably my favorite film of his that he did post-Bond was The Man from Hong Kong, which is a crazy James Bond wannabe thriller from Hong Kong, also filmed in Australia starring Jimmy Wong. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter Hunt, a director, basically left the, the Bond team fold after this movie yeah. and went on to be a director himself. Unfortunately, he never really distinguished himself, although I have to say I do have a weakness for this one movie he did, Shout at the Devil. Shout at the Devil, that's right, he did do that. <laughs> Starring Lee Marvin and Roger Moore in a crazy World War One drama thriller set in uh, Africa, I believe it was. <laughs> yeah. And another one with Charles Bronson called Death Hunt, which is also interesting. I don't even think I've seen that. Yeah. I, I do enjoy the Charlie Bronson. I mean, would you recommend, is it, it's, it's a good Bronson time where you're like, eh, if you're a completist. Yeah, I mean, it's an early 80s Bronson film, but I think he, Peter Hunt does bring a little bit of flair to it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not a great film by any stretch, but it's, and it's also got Lee Marvin. Can't go wrong with Lee Marvin. <laughs> Don't get me started on Lee Marvin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Point blank, fuck. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, and like you said, time has been on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service's side, you know? Was it both Steven Soderbergh and Christopher Nolan? They're like, it's my favorite Bond movie, too. You know, mm-hmm. whether you like them or not. But two prominent modern auteurs being like, this movie's dope. Okay, here's a random question. Would you want Christopher Nolan to direct a Bond movie? Would I? His stuff doesn't make sense. It looks cool, but then it's fairly, like, specious upon further examination yeah i think he'd work <laughs> I, I think he'd work fine and he'd do it in like 70 millimeter and how about you <laughs> i have mixed feelings i mean i have i have no doubt that he would bring his a-game to it because he loves the property so much yeah maybe he'd be too sincere or i don't know try to be too serious yeah i don't think he's necessarily the best director of action yeah um, and the other thing about Bond movies, you know, it, it's kind of hard to hit that sweet spot. I think one sort of weird problem we've been seeing with Bond movies recently is they've become very respectable in a way. Yeah. You know, we have Oscar winning directors and actors working in this Bond. Right. Movie. It's yeah. like, wait, what? It was, it was like supposed to be like models and like <laughs> models friends. <laughs> I think the best Bond movies take the core concept seriously enough but they also have something a little dirty and disreputable about it yeah. a little whiff of the uh, illicit about it yeah right and I think Christopher Nolan's maybe a little bit too respectable for that that's a good point he might make it a little too prim and goddamn proper where <laughs> you know yeah it, it, it needs to be grungier <laughs> here's another probably unanswerable question but I know it's one that's debated a lot amongst Bond fans mm. but if Sean Connery was in this movie well, A, how do you think it would come out? And B, do you think it would be a better movie? I actually don't think it would have been a better movie. Mm. I think the tone would have been different. I think a lot of the sort of 
carefree, swinging late 60s aspect of it wouldn't be there. I think it would be a bit more gruff. So yeah, I think it would have been a very, a very, very different movie. I think it would have been quite palpably not what, you know, ended up being. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. I think, you know, if you look at where Sean Connery was in his career at that point, yeah. you know, he's basically on the, on the verge of like Zardoz, right? <laughs> Zardoz. The gun is good. The penis is evil. Where Now, it's interesting though, because I think the way he portrayed the character in all the previous films, you know, he does have a certain impregnability about yeah. him. His bond maybe wouldn't be touched by a woman the way George Lazenby's bond is touched by Diana Rigg in the movie. I, yeah. think, I think that's yeah. the primary thing, I yeah. would say. We would, not, we would not have that vulnerability at all. Right. But on the other hand, you know, Sean Connery's had a really interesting career. I mean, everybody talks about his rebirth in the 80s with the untouchables and all that. But yeah. I find his 70s output very fascinating because... In those movies, like with Robin Hood, The Man Who Would Be King. Yeah, Robin and Marion is such a good movie. Another, yeah, Richard Lester. God, right. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. He's sort of poking fun at his old, like, macho image in those movies quite a bit. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, maybe he wasn't ready for it at the, at the time, but I wonder if a more sort of wearied Bond that's similar to a 70s performance is put in Honor Majesty's Secret Service might have been interesting to see. Like Paul Schrader it up a bit. That mm-hmm. could have been fun. Mm-hmm. That could have been fun. Yeah. But yeah, and I feel like some of the moments where like Lazenby was trying to be like early Connery-ish were kind of, I don't know, things fell f- a little flat or, you know, like who really branched off? It's like, you could have just like not said that, <laughs> you know? As opposed to, you know, where he's like bouncing from room to room and he's like, you're a picture of yourself and twice as lovely in the firelight. Like, that's, like, funny because that's, like, not – that's more like, hey, you know, fun 60s. As a, Like, Connery wouldn't – I don't think he would, like, yeah, deliver that line to, like, every woman that he hooked up with. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I think he would take a different approach. Right, A little yeah. bit more brusque, right? A bit more. A bit more a bit commanding. More. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that fascinates me as a Bondophile is – you sort of see the the influence of previous eras on new eras. Yeah. When a new Bond takes over, for example. Yeah. So what you're talking about there was some of the cheesy one-liners, stuff that Connery did a lot of. And you sort of carry it over because you're trying to maintain at least some semblance of a thread. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think another example that comes to mind for me is uh, The Living Daylights, which is Timothy Dalton's first Bond movie. And he's obviously trying to portray a more serious Bond than Roger Moore did. And yet you have him skiing away on a cello case, you know, during, <laughs> for a big set piece. <laughs> right. You're like, it's, it's, yeah, it's just not goofy enough. <laughs> we need a little bit more goof. We need a little more goof. Yeah. Um, did you have any final thoughts? Final thoughts. Uh, on Iron um, Secret Service. Still the greatest Bond film of all time. Diana Brigg, still the greatest Bond lady of all time. George Lazenby, the greatest Bond of all time. No, he's not the greatest Bond of all time, but a great Bond. People are harsh on him. He showed up. He did the job. I believed he was Bond all the way through. I was, like, there with him. Maybe it's maybe it's best that he only did one, just, like, one and done, you know? It's like Night of the Hunter this. Let's just, like, make this one time, so. Hmm. Interesting. Late 60s, if you love that vibe and that feeling, it's got everything that you want and some cheesy weird projection shit (laughs) (laughs) absolutely the film certainly makes me feel elegiac right not not just because of the nature of the story but because i I think it does sort of close off an era in bond history yeah and it kind of makes me sad for what might have been because 
the talk actually was that the next movie, which was Diamonds Are Forever, would have been more of a direct continuation of Honor Majesty's Secret Service if George Lazenby had stuck around. Interesting. And then the plot line would have been more about Bond getting revenge on Blofeld for killing his wife. Interesting. Um, the, the movie was not a bomb by any means at the box office. Yeah, like, it, it did all right. Like, yeah. it, it didn't embarrass the producers and, like, lose money. Like, it did perfectly fine. But it is fair to say that it did not reach the financial heights of some of the previous ones. No. But I mean, it didn't even get, like, a Golden Globe nomination. New lead actor or something. I think it was, like, Lazenby oh, that got right? nominated. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a good chance I am. But, yeah, like, I thought, like, he actually got a nomination. Like, really? <laughs> As we now know, as history proved out, they basically went to formula from that point to, to the point of bringing Sean Connery back for Diamonds Are Forever. This is probably another story for another time, but for that particular movie, they even went so far as to thinking, maybe we should have Goldfinger's twin brother as the villain in this movie, and we'll get Gert Frobe to play him again. Oh. Oh. <laughs> That's how desperate they were to recapture the glory days at that point. Yeah. They kept it afloat. (laughs) And 50 years later, it is still going strong. Still persists. Yeah. Well, yeah, it it has been an honor to uh, chop it up with a uh, Bond expert of your caliber. (laughs) Thanks for letting me prattle on about all things Lazenby and Rig. Oh, no. Um, I could could talk about this movie all day. Oh, (laughs) hey, me too. Well, thank you, Kit. Appreciate you having you. We'll definitely have you back at some point. Thanks so much, Ho. Really appreciate it. Uh, If you're interested in more about my movie reviews and general commentary, you can visit my website, camera-roll.com. And you can also email me with any questions or feedback, or even suggestions. It's at camerarollmovie at gmail.com. It's all one word, camerarollmovie. This is Holin, thanking you once again, signing off until next time, and enjoy yourself at the movies.